Dead Stick Radio, Episode 3, recorded November 27, 2018. Today, me and Scott talk about our experience at the Air Race 1 China Cup in Wuhan, China. So we just got back from Wuhan, China, and uh, we were there for the Air Race 1 uh, International World Cup, I guess? Yeah, Air Race 1 China Cup. Air Race 1 China Cup. And uh, there was uh, about 12 racers out there, but we figured we'd give you a... Uh, a, a kind of a rundown of what uh, what what transpired and how we got there. Yeah. So we uh, back in August, I think, Jeff Saltman, who's the CEO of Air Race One, approached us and said that there's a last minute race in uh, Wuhan City, China, and we all went, "Well, where's Wuhan?" So we did some googling and learned a little bit about it, and found the airport down in Henan, which is south of Wuhan City, and we. Started looking into it a little bit more. Uh, Jeff's numbers were right, and uh, he said, "Yeah, it's going to happen. Just it's really the last minute. We apologize, and we're going to ship straight from Reno." And so we looked in time off. I got it. Several other people got it. And we had, I think, uh, sixteen people signed up at Reno. We raced in Reno totally normally, and on the I think third last day, Jeff pulls us into a meeting and says, "Hey guys, we uh, we're delayed." And we went, well, what does that mean? And Jeff said, well, the race got postponed from middle of October to middle of November. And I have no further information. And we all went, oh, man, we've already got the time off. We're supposed to load in a container in two days. Now we're not going anymore. We're not going right away. Like, what do we do with our airplanes even? And so what we decided to do was take it home, uh, drag it all the way back to Edmonton and park it. And then four weeks later drive it all the way back to Reno and load it in a container in Reno. So Robert Austin, who's a Edmonton local, bought Pooter, which is an airplane that's typically based down in, in Reno. And because he has no trailer, it made more sense for us to drive the, our trailer back to Reno and, and container both airplanes there. And then our container can ship in the middle of winter direct to Edmonton on the return leg. And that saves us from a winter trip down to Reno to pick the airplane up. So that, that actually worked out fairly well for us. So we, uh, we drove it all the way back to Reno in October. Kelly and my dad did. And uh, loaded it up, no problem there. We actually met Nick Audenried uh, from, the, from the Kit Fox movies and videos there. Really nice guy, actually. And, uh, the flying, he, flying cowboys, I think they call themselves. Yeah, and so we, yeah, we had a good chat with him. That was kind of cool. It's, uh, it was kind of my first experience uh, with Kid Foxes and and those people down there. Uh, they're they're of I think YouTube fame now. And uh, loaded up, no problem. Got the airplane shipped off, no problem. I think Robert learned a whole bunch because he'd never taken an airplane apart before. Uh, so we did a lot of that. Showed him how to do it, that kind of thing, how to pickle the engine. Uh, loaded up, no problem, and shipped them. So then we uh, we flew home, and and Kelly and my dad drove home. They had a nice little trip taking their time, enjoying the scenery, that kind of thing. Made it home, and then uh, five weeks later, we boarded a flight to Beijing. And so uh, going to the race was me, uh, Kelly Green, who was the crew chief, uh, Brian Murray, and Eldon Jezdel, who both, it was their first international race. Uh, they Brian and Eldon flew out uh, one day after Kelly and I, Kelly and I went a day early to try and help with the uh, acclimatization, I guess, uh, because we had to put the plane together right away. And so we, uh, Kelly and I jumped on a flight in in a premium economy, which was basically economy with an extra two inches of width in the seats, and had a uh, below average flight <laughs> across the ocean to Beijing. Got to Beijing, totally lost uh, with the with the uh, all the language barriers and so on. Ended up leaving security for some reason, walked right past our bags, which we didn't know, but got offloaded. Uh, went back through security and got quite the rub down, all trying to navigate through an airport that has very little English, and you can't even figure out or get a gist of what they're saying because the language is so different than than uh, English. Uh, made it to our gate and ran into uh, several of the other air show performers as well, so it was kind of nice to see some of our old friends again and meet some new people. So we had uh, Rick Volker and Trish Volker on our flight. Uh, we had Mario, uh, Brent Handy, who's who flies the pits in our shows. And so they're all kind of the Canadian crew, which is kind of cool. 
And so we were all in the same flight into Wuhan, and then we were all in the same van and ran into Creighton King in uh, in Wuhan, I think, and he was on our on our van as well. And then made it to the hotel, and we just totally crashed. So the next day, we woke up, uh, didn't sleep much that night, went to breakfast, and and uh, at breakfast it was only chopsticks, no fork or knife, no Western food, all Chinese food. But the hotel was brand new, and they had had some people in it, but it wasn't. It was probably half full at the time. And so we uh, we ate breakfast, kind of got acclimatized, went for a walk around China, kind of uh, cultural shock still. And then took, uh, actually we found a ride out to, a bus ride out to the airport and went out and checked it out. Got to the airport and it's dead. So in China, you're not allowed to uh, fly your general aviation airplane unless you have permission to go. And that takes like three to five days. And in, in this airport where you are allowed to fly it, you're only allowed to fly it within, I think, a five kilometer radius of the airport, which is almost not possible. It's so small. And so we, there was no movements or anything. And we walked into the one hangar that was there. Well, actually, there were several hangars, but only one that was really open. And that turned out to be where our pits were the, all week. And in there, they were, they were pushing uh, these, these cool trikes out and assembling a whole bunch of XA-42s, which is really fun to watch. Our containers still weren't opened yet. And uh, we, uh, that was when we actually met Maz, who's in our previous episode, and several of the other performers as well who were flying those XAs over there. Um, Brian, how did your flight go? Oh, mine was quite a bit better. Uh, we we took a, we we actually flew Air Canada. Me and uh, me and Eldon actually, I think Eldon was on Air China, uh, but we were up in the business class seats, so they were quite a bit more comfortable, and you can actually get a nice night's rest. And they had some caviar and and all the all the fun stuff. So we got uh, we we got when we got there, we decided uh, instead of flying out to Wuhan from Beijing, we were going to just take the bullet train. So that was a bit of a, a bit of a mess that night. We ended up um, ended up leaving the airport. Uh, found a, finally found a cab, and the guy didn't speak a, a word of English. So we sat there in the car with him, trying to translate using Google Translate, and he could not understand for the life of him the the words, the translated words, uh, Beijing West Train Station or Bullet Train. I, sh- I was literally showing him pictures of a bullet train, like get me here. And he had no idea what we were talking about. So he ended up calling his daughter and uh, and she had to translate for us. We eventually did get there uh, to the bullet train. But of course, the last one had already left for the day. That would, would have got us all the way to Wuhan. So we had to find a hotel, wandered around. And the we, we had to, the closest hotel that we could find, we had to walk about, well, it was, it was, it was across the street. But it was, uh, you know, Beijing across the street. So a little bit of a windy path. And we had to drive. We had to walk through a. Uh, it was it was like this little mini mall that was selling. I don't even know what, but it, it smelled uh, it smelled like Chinese food. Um, and we ended up uh, staying in the, the hotel. It was one of the green, green grimiest, grungiest hotels I've ever stayed in in my life. Uh, hardest bed. It was the bed was probably made of granite. It was really bad. So we finally wake up first thing in the morning. Uh, we were figuring, well, we're going to get the 10 o'clock one, maybe the 11 o'clock one, sleep in a little bit, you know, kind of get uh, get a bit acclimatized to the new time zone. But we were both up by like 7. So we're just like, we got to get out of here. And uh, we headed across and ended up taking the bullet train. But you figure you take the bullet train, you know, you're doing 300 kilometers an hour. You're going to get to see the, all the countryside. It was about five hours of bullet train ride. And uh, you couldn't see anything. There was... It was so foggy that you could see maybe a quarter mile off the side of the train tracks, and it was almost all exclusively run-down old farmhouses. It 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 didn't look nice. So it was kind of cool to take the bullet train over. Uh, we got uh, some. There was almost nobody in our train car. Everyone was kind of in the in the rear train cars, and uh, but it, it was it was kind of a fun experience going you know 300 kilometers an hour right on the on the on the ground and a incredibly smooth ride and uh we ended up getting there about a day after scott did i guess and uh yeah we spent the day while you were in the bullet train we spent the day opening the container up and unloading what we learned was several of the airplanes took an extremely hard ride in that container so we found so we opened up one container which had kermit and uh uh, bomb in it which is des hart's old airplane and it was they actually had wood screws that had sheared and both airplanes got loose and, and, and slid towards each other and into each other. And, and, uh, some of the tails suffered some, some fabric damage, 
But that wasn't too bad. And we opened up Endeavor's container, and it had come loose as well. And it had, the tail had come all the way up and, and smashed the rudder up a little bit. So in the pictures, you'll see, you'll notice the repair done to Endeavor's rudder. It's because it came loose in the container. Even our container, which is packed extremely well, had my airplane slide to the left and the tailwheel came loose. But fortunately, all the secondary straps that we put on it held perfect. So we noticed all the containers had some extremely hard rides. We also noticed that some toolboxes in other people's containers had been uh, jarred so badly that the drawers were bent and the drawers didn't open properly anymore. So we knew that, and it, like we had gauges smashed, the kind of tire pressure gauge with a, with a plastic cover on it, it was all smashed. And so we could tell those containers had been through some, some seriously hard times. So when we put the plane together, we did an extra good uh, airworthiness inspection to make sure that the wing was still bonded properly and there's no uh, fuselage damage and, and especially no primary structure damage on any of the components. So fortunately, we got away with it. No damage at all, uh, even though it came loose a little bit. The tailwheel moved a bit, but uh, all the secondary straps held perfect and the plane showed up perfectly fine. It was uh, the, the the next day when they were getting rid of the containers, we could kind of tell why they had had some damage on them. They were lifting them up with a crane and they had one... One one metal uh, or cable on it connected, and then they they connected it right in the middle of that that metal cable. It was the most janky thing I'd ever seen in my life. I didn't want to get anywhere near that while they were lifting it, but you could tell that they were not exactly gentle with those containers. Yeah, and, and who knows where the damage could have happened to? It could have been on like a rough boat ride or something. Nobody really knows. But regardless, it it was not healthy for the airplanes. So we, uh, Kelly and I got the airplane together in actually probably record time. It probably took us five hours to get the plane together and ready for inspection and fueling and so on. And that's kind of a record. Usually it takes us about twice that long down in Reno. So we're definitely getting better at it. Uh, the airplane went together fine. We got gas and we did our, our test run and everything was normal. And so then that, that I think was the end of the first day. That's about the time that Brian and Ellen showed up. Yeah, I was, I was there when we got fuel, and I remember the, the gas truck pulled up. We had no idea if it had low lead 100 or jet A1. So we're sitting there trying to communicate with this this poor driver. What kind of gas is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, airplane gas. Yeah, yeah but what kind of airplane gas? There's a lot of jets around here. Like, what, what kind of gas is this? Airplane gas. So about 20 minutes later, we're sitting there. There's literally people. Some of the some of the other uh, uh, Air Race One guys are sitting there smelling the gas to see if it's the right kind. We're pouring it out into containers, and it looks and smells like the right type of gas. And eventually, we decide, okay, yeah, this is fine. We'll put this in the planes, and it, it turned out to be the right kind of gas. Yeah, it was blue dyed, but still, we we had no idea what it was, and it kind of smelled funny. I know in Thailand we had issues. We had we had milky gas. We had tons of water in the gas sometimes, so. Uh, we were all fairly uh, leery and, and a little bit nervous using this gas. So we did uh, good quality checks before and after each filling at first until we started to trust the truck. And then when they all came back clear, we started trusting it like a normal fuel truck and, and kept using it as a normal fuel truck after that with no incidents. So fuel-wise, we went good. Um, the We did learn a hard lesson the first day, though, that test runs are uh, only approved after you call the tower for permission which is something that none of us had ever heard of before, is getting permission to start. Um, but we needed it, and we didn't know it, and we broke some rules to begin with, learned the hard way, and uh, fortunately came out of it without any uh, repercussions. So on the second day, what was the second day, Brian? Oh, second day? I don't think we were allowed to fly at all on the second day. I think we just kind of Oh, that might around. have been media day. No. Oh, yes, that was that was the first yeah, proper media day, yeah. Yeah, so I think that was an experience for Brian and Ellen Kelly and I had been through it before. But basically, the hangar was full of reporters of, of news and TV and everything. And we had a, I had all the mics in my face, and Brian and Eldon were laughing. And it was it was, it was kind of kind of fun to see. Scott definitely had the most amount of people around him. Of course, the, in all the press releases, they had mentioned Scott has the has the nicest looking airplane because it's always shiny and polished up. And and Scott's the youngest racer in in, in Air Race One, so it was made a, made for a very good story for them. Yeah, they, uh, they were showing me pictures the next day of all the newspapers that we were on the front of. And uh, so we were wondering if that's why everybody wanted to take selfies or if it was just because we were uh, white people. So I don't know which one it is, but it was sure interesting to see. So the third day, I think it was a weather day. 
Was that right? I think it was a weather day, yeah. And I think we I think that day we wrapped early to go into downtown. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then we went for a tour of uh, downtown Wuhan. We got on the bus and drove like two hours uh, around town looking at all the parks and, and buildings and bridges and that kind of thing. Went for a walk in a couple parks. East, e- Easter Lake. E- East, oh, Easter, Easter Lake. Lake. Easter, Easter Lake. Lake. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, it was an interesting little park. Nothing terribly special. There was lilies and it, it was kind of a nice little park, but it was pretty dark. Except for the one bright, shiny beacon right in the middle of that park labeled KFC. It uh, kind of stood out like a sore thumb, but it was a, kind of a nice little park. Yeah. And then, uh, then we went for dinner. Uh, over by uh, Han Street. And we went up into this upstairs, like, third floor restaurant. Walked down these hallways, and there's all these private dinner rooms. And the our tour guide named Leo, who, who kind of took care of us the whole week, really good at what he does, uh, took us uh, into this private room that he reserved for us and sat us down. And they, they kept bringing food over to the rotating table. There's, like, a table in the center of our, our dinner table that would rotate with the food on it. we just pick. It's a thing they call it family style. And then uh, afterwards, they, they brought us the white, the white wine. And they said, well, don't forget that you have to uh, do your uh, your blow in the morning for the uh, the breathalyzer machine that they're making us, all the pilots do. Had to blow, what, so 0.00? They, yeah, 0.0. And the uh, white wine turned out to be, what, 43%? It, it smelled and kind of tasted a bit like turpentine. Yeah, it was, it was not white wine. So we uh, I only tested a little bit of it. So the next morning we, or, or then we went to Hand Street after dinner. We walked around a little bit. It's just a cool shopping street. And uh, Tim Cohen, the, the pilot of 99, stun, like, stuck out like a sore thumb. He was about uh, 18 inches taller than everybody else. And he had a bright white bald head and, and white legs and sandals. And, and everybody else was like way shorter and in jackets and jeans and on a date with their girlfriend. And so it was quite funny. You could see Tim quite far away. And so we, we hung around with them a little bit. Uh, lots of people taking our picture at that point, which was kind of an experience. And then uh, we, we cut the bus home and slept for a little bit, got home late, and then woke up early the next morning to get to the airport. So the next day, I think that was practice day, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was the only day aside from the final day that you guys actually got up in the air. Yeah, so I think I did, what, three flights that day? So I, I, did, a pra- uh, I did a high up test flight first, I think, where yep. I circled twice. Yep. With Mike Mandel, the weather was like, like three miles. No, it was like two miles of visibility, maybe. Wasn't great. And put it that way. maybe fifteen hundred foot ceiling, and with rain showers here and there, so everything was wet. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. It was raining on the back stretch, and so uh, I took off with Mike Mandel and and just doing right turns over the airport, and we just kind of spaced ourselves uh, the same distance apart. So when he was flying over the airport, I was flying uh, the opposite direction, and so on, and. I totally lost them. Like when we were when we were at opposite ends of the of the course, I could not see them at all until we passed each other on the straights, and so that was really scary because uh, he maneuvered to land, and I didn't see him do that, and he didn't tell me he was doing that, and we ended up quite close to each other just from a total lack of visibility, which was really scary, but we made it work. Uh, there's nothing I wouldn't call it a near miss, but we definitely wasn't planned. Uh, so we we learned a lesson that day with the visibility. The next flight was, I think, I think we qualified next, right? Yeah, I think qualify, qualifying was next, yeah. Yeah, so that was just a, a launch direct onto the course. I think it was a downwind takeoff. Yeah, I did five laps, I think, and called for the clock right away. Oh, I remember. I took off with Pooter. Yep. I followed Pooter out. Steve, Steve Temple was flying it. And we did the... Oh, we took off upwind off runway four, which is the wrong direction. Uh, 45 degree right off home pylon over the trees and then we headed for pylon four and then made a left uh, turn on at, on four onto the course i don't think they had six up or was it four that wasn't up yet yeah well time? uh no it was three that wasn't up three that wasn't and up. so yeah we didn't pile on three so we just guessed where it was uh so we qualified just because we knew that might be our only time to qualify and it actually was the only time to qualify and so i just followed pooter and watched pooter call the clock i called the clock right after uh, launched and went. I remember that flight. Now the uh, the helicopter that was coming in, the NR44, come in for the air show, and it uh, it wasn't very good at at uh, knowing where the uh, rotor wash was, and so it landed over far by the taxiway at the far end of the field, uh, at the south end of the field, and it blew a whole bunch of foam out onto the taxiway. And so as Temple and I were taxiing by, 
Temple just barely clears this big block of foam on the runway. And so he makes the call, there's foam on the runway. And uh, in their broken Chinese, they say, okay, okay. And so Temple called them again, and they went, okay. And so then Temple said, do I have permission to take off? And they went, uh, and they said something that was completely not understandable. So he repeated it. Do I have permission to take off? And in a thick Chinese accent, they went, uh, no permission to take off. And then, but the no part wasn't very clear. And so Temple asked them again. And we knew right then that we'd be in some trouble for the week with our driver control. So we, uh, we managed to get clearance to go. We went and uh, we went in a flight of two, which worked good. And uh, we qualified together and, and uh, we didn't have any confirmation we were on the clock. So we were just kind of hoping and praying. Uh, fortunately, uh, Izzy Goforth was the timer and she did a great job. So we all got times that day, I think. Uh, it was not raining by the second flight. And then we landed. And I think that same day at like five o'clock, right before dark, we right decided before. to do a practice race start and full race, eight laps. Which and so we, we eventually ended up calling as the the silver uh, uh, silver race, the first silver race. Yeah, I think so. But it was a it was just a practice, and so nobody was really well prepared for it. And they were we were really rushed with the air show performers getting in there, so we barely had time to do this. And so we uh, we launched, and actually, I think I think that race went perfectly fine. There was no issues. Yeah, that race was all right. And now, of course, every time we tried to get out there and do anything, suddenly the air show performers would go and take off or, or go and take our, our airtime or whatever. It was kind of a, a poorly organized that day. Yeah, that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the, the the big lesson of the whole event is the the organization, especially airside organization, was fairly poorly managed, which apparently is fairly typical for shows over there. And so we just kind of went when we were told to go and didn't go when we weren't ready and when they didn't have the airspace and when they didn't have crash fire rescue. So I think that, so we, we landed like right near dark. And by the time we got the planes put away, it was like seven o'clock and dark out. Took the bus ride home, went for dinner, went to bed. Then the next day, I think we were rained out, weren't we? Yeah, we were definitely rained out the next day. Was that, was that the crowd day, the autograph day? That was, yeah, that was the big, big autograph day. So that was the day we... Uh... That day, I think I had more photos taken of me in that single day than I have in the rest of my entire life. Everyone wanted photos. Everyone wanted to come and get your photo, get their photo taken with the white guys standing next to an airplane. Yeah, I think that was the Saturday at this point. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, I just took a seat, started signing. And then uh, when I had to, excuse me, when I had to get lunch, Brian kept signing. (laughs) There's a couple signatures out there that might not be Scott's. Yeah. And, uh. We signed for probably pretty much the whole afternoon, I think. Uh, tons of pictures. I, I hired two of the locals that spoke really good English, two of the girls that were kind of hanging around our pit, and gave them T-shirts if they could help me translate for a couple hours, and so they did great. So thank you very much uh, if you're listening. Then that was pretty much the end of that day because it was pretty much rained out completely. Like I'm talking not even possible to fly. Yeah, they, uh, they started closing the... the the doors on us too and of course all the pilots and all the crew are like whoa, whoa, whoa what are you doing we want you know if we're not going to be able to fly we want at least people to be able to come and say hi to us and get their signatures and and uh and whatnot so we went over and opened the doors and security was not happy with us initially but uh they kind of ended up acquiescing to it and it was it ended up being a really good day yeah, well, I think that was Friday because Saturday we did the rundown in the rain. Yeah, it was Friday. Yeah, Friday that we did the the yeah signatures and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So then Saturday comes, wake up in the morning and go figure it's pouring rain again, like seriously pouring rain. And so we we spent a whole day just chilling, and some of the other performers were flying. It was very bad weather, horrible weather. Um, so they waited for their holes and they went, and it wasn't even close to good enough for us. And uh, then right at the end of the day, we were thinking, well, it's the second last day. Jeff asked if we could do any kind of maneuver to uh, show the, the Chinese what it looks like to do a race start and kind of get it on, on camera because apparently we were live on Chinese national television. And so we decided, okay, well, we can pull out. We can line up on the, on the runway. We can fire up. And because it's pouring rain, we'll just taxi back. And so that's what we did is we all pulled out and soaked ourselves, lined up on the runway, fired up, and immediately fogged up the canopy so bad you couldn't see anything. So I taxied back, looking through a hole, 
probably three inches diameter that I was constantly having to wipe because I could not get anything to clear up in there. It was terrible. And so we just kind of gave him a show and we did some engine runs and we, we revved the engines a little bit and taxi taxi down the runway and back down the crowd line and then put the airplanes away. So we what? Philip do some donuts down there and Yeah, until in typical Philip fashion he did some donuts. And then uh, I think that was the end of that day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much the end of that day. So then Sunday comes, which is the big race day. And it was supposed to be clearing up and sure enough it did. We got uh, oh no, uh, what day was it? We did one, we did one, I think the first silver race that day, but it was super foggy and we only launched two out of the five airplanes, uh, had mechanicals and aborted takeoffs and only three made it on the course. It was very funny because when they pulled off the course at the end of the race, they disappeared in the clouds, yeah. <laughs> like gone. Yeah. And so we went, oh man, maybe we should wait. So we waited out, waited for the weather to clear. And then was that that day or was that the Friday? I can't remember. So, but yeah. we definitely tried to do a silver race. So then... Come Sunday, the weather was nice by this point. We decided to launch a gold race to start. And uh, the, so we, I ended up racing three times that day. I think I did a gold heat, then a silver fill-in, and then a, a gold final. Yep. And then we were going to do a 1v1, one-lap sprint at the end if there was time. So the, the, first sil- or the first gold race, I think, went off without a hitch, didn't it? Yeah, it would it? Uh, there wasn't any real issues there on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think there are any aborted takeoffs or anything either. Uh, yeah, not in the gold. Not in the gold. Yeah, uh, Senegal won that one. Then the silver race came, and we were filling in and had quite a takeoff with airplanes absolutely everywhere. And it was not. It did not go as per plan, but we all made it work. And it was quite busy in the air. We should say. Um, I think that was the flight that Zado had his engine failure on takeoff and, uh, he got it down and then the engine came back and so he took off again and then it died totally, which you think was carb ice. And so he put it down in the last maybe 500 feet of the 5,000 foot runway. That's Uh, that's something that got stopped. Yeah, that's that's something to note, uh, particularly compared to Reno. In Reno, you get we're um, you're high altitude, very dry climate, very warm. You're not really that susceptible to carb ice. But there, because it was so foggy all the time, it was and and much colder. Uh, all the planes were much more susceptible to carb ice. So people were afraid to run anything lower than maximum power or or idle power, uh, for fear of getting of getting the the carb all iced up. Yeah, and uh, I know I think it was on the silver race. I was I was number two behind Philip and somebody else who was just touching down, and then all of a sudden I hear, uh, oh yeah. So the background behind this is we're not allowed to say the word mayday. If we say the word mayday, it's not free. We're gonna have to do the Chinese paperwork and do the Chinese investigation. We weren't really sure what happens to the airplanes, so our word was uh, roll the trucks, Tim. And Tim Spencer was our uh, emergency crash fire rescue coordinator who goes with us all over the place, and we trust him. And so he, he knew what that meant. So we were, uh, I, I remember on, on the, I think the second race, I was, I was, I was sequence number two behind Philip at this point. Philip was on final, I was on base and we hear, uh, whoever's on base, go around. And I thought, what's going on? And so I started looking around, looking a little closer and I saw this dude with, with stripes on the bottoms of his wings, banking hard, uh, coming in real tight, cutting off Philip and I, uh, with his nose pointed straight for the runway out of like a like a mid-downwind position. And he was just giving her. He was heading straight for the runway, pointing downhill. And uh, we knew he was in, in bad shape. And I knew Philip hadn't seen him yet. And, and Philip was in direct conflict. I still had room to sequence behind him. And so I said, Philip, go around. He went around perfect. Philip did exactly the right thing. And sure enough, Paul Newman got carbice when he pulled off the course, uh, killed the power, and it started running really rough. And so he knew that engine failure was imminent. And so he just did what he did best and flew the airplane first and uh, made it to the runway no problem. We went around him. We managed the, the uh, emergency no problem, and we got away with it no problem. Uh, so that was that race. And then in the gold final, uh, what happened in that? I think it was. I think it went off without a hitch, didn't it? Yeah, it was. It went pretty, 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 pretty fine. Yeah. Was, was uh, Endeavor rough running? I don't think it was rough running. It. There was times where people were like, well, is his engine stopped? No, no, he's just good at gliding, so. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that one went off that hitch. Uh, Zato got a new prop for, for last lap player and uh, fired, got it, fired up and found no damage and flew no problem. 
Uh, I think everybody else flew no problem in that gold race too, and we all landed without issue. Which uh, which one was it that couldn't start? Because he had he found um, like washers in his engine. Oh yeah, and so Jason Barksdale, uh, who aborted the silver heat race where everybody else ended up in the clouds, uh, he his engine was was rough running. It wasn't running right, and so they pulled into the hangar and and felt which cylinder was running a little bit colder and pulled that plug and found that the wire on the end of the plug was bent in. And they went, ah, bad plug. And so I was thinking, man, I've dropped plugs before and I've never had it run rough like that, like it was missing, like it, like a valve was sticking. And so I said, man, you guys should probably check this out a little bit better. And so Josh Watson, who's really a really good guy, was the crew chief of that airplane. And so Josh agreed and they pulled it out and they ran it again, sure enough. With the new plug in it, that sucker was still missing and, and backfiring and sputtering, and it was not happy at all. And so they pulled it back into the hangar, and I said, what would cause, I was thinking to myself, and with Josh, and we were kind of thinking together, I was like, what would cause rough running like that uh, and, and spark plug damage like that where the, where the wire was completely bent in? The only thing I could think of was Jim Salzman in Edmonton told me once that he was flying Henry Wyatt skimmer with Henry, and found a uh, screw had been sucked up into the, or nut had been sucked up into one cylinder, was bouncing around and causing rough running. I, th- I said, Josh, what do you think? You think it's possible he sucked in a, a screw or something? And so Josh went, oh, that could be that could be what's going on. And so we, we uh, scoped the engine out a little bit. Somebody brought a scope. And sure enough, they found a, wa- or a washer in one cylinder and I think a nut or something in another cylinder. And so that was kind of the end of that engine for the for the whole week, and so that parked them for the last day, unfortunately. Um, but at least they found it, and it didn't cause anything catastrophic, other than uh, two cylinders that need to be replaced. So I think other than that, that was all the oh yeah, Jerry Marshall uh, never was able to figure out his engine gremlins, and he had several aborted takeoffs, but never flew. Uh, Endeavor was able to fix their tail uh, that had been crunched by the container. I think Richard Zato actually came to the rescue and, and used his composite repair skills from working on Long Easy so often uh, to make it work, uh, make a proper repair and make it fl- safe to fly again. Uh, I think that was all the issues, wasn't it? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that, that pretty much covers uh, all the issues that I that I saw around there. Yeah, the, the big one was carb ice. And so tons of people had carb ice. I had carb heat, so it didn't really matter to me. Nobody else did. Who was it that installed a carby, carb, uh, carb heat system? In, oh, yeah. There? So Mike Mandel had a... Uh, so actually, it was Jason Crawford's airplane. Mike Mandel was flying 58 Sonic Zoom. They actually had a carb heat system that bolts onto the exhaust pipes uh, externally outside the cowling, like Piper Cub style, kind of. And uh, so that's what they were running, but it slowed them down an awful lot. And so they were able to make that thing work. If there's pictures of it, we should, uh, we should dig those out. But it was quite an interesting setup. And so they, uh, yeah, he had carb heat too, I guess. And apparently Pooter had it too, but it wasn't hooked up, but they didn't really need it. So other than that, I think that's all the issues. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, the big challenge of that whole race was definitely the bad visibility. And so that, that was killing us all week and everybody was terrified for the uh, recoveries. Oh yeah, I forgot to talk about the breathalyzer. Oh yes. So we come out of a briefing and they say, pilots stay back. So we all did. Come out of the briefing and they say, okay, it's, it's blow time. And we okay. And so they, there were two very mean-looking cops standing at the exit of the brief of the uh, briefing room, and they had this red tube that was about uh, two inches diameter, or, or yeah, two inches, uh, about two inches diameter, maybe it was like a baton length, and with a with a screen on one end, and in Chinese they 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 told us they motioned towards it and said something in Chinese. And so uh, Philip had no idea what to do. So he wraps both hands around this thing and puts his mouth around it and blows as hard as he can. And they went, no, 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 no. And they meant they just motioned, blow, blow, blow. By this point, all the guys are laughing. And so then he finally figures out that all he has to do is blow in the end, and he does. And then Temple goes and also and in the other machine and also didn't know what to do. And he also, um, two hands up, wraps his mouth around it. And the police say, no, 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 no. And so when Temple blew clear, because Temple's the big, uh, the partier, everybody cheered. And so then it was my turn. And I figured out what to do by this point. All you had to do was simply just blow on it like you're blowing dust off of a, off a wall or something. 
and the machine reads it. And so that's what everybody else did at that point. But it was, it was quite funny watching uh, the first two guys try and figure it out. I have no idea. Uh, so other than that, I think uh, I think that was all the stories. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much all there there was there. I know. Uh, well, why don't you talk a little bit about the actual racetrack and uh, some of the recovery options compared to what there was in Reno? Yeah, good point. So this airport was five thousand feet long. Uh, I think it was pretty much north south, and it, it uh, was four two two. I think is what it was. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, from my perspective, it looked north south. And it was right on the bank of the Yangtze River, almost. And so when you looked out from the apron, you saw the runway, and behind that was a big row of trees and a road. And so the course was set up between the runway and the river, so that when we were on the course, the runway was the deadline, uh, the crowd line, and the basically the back stretch was right down the beach. And so it was really pretty back there because you could see the barges pushing, uh, pushing cars. Uh, down the Yangtze and transporting cars who knows where and so that river's quite deep and quite a busy shipping lane so I'm sure we put on quite a good show back there so the uh, the course was fairly normal but the row of trees down the middle was probably 100 feet high once you factor in elevation changes and so a level line put us probably 100 feet off the ground maybe 150 and so that was kind of comfortable and so what what the challenge there was it was really easy to get sucked low down the back stretch and down the front stretch and then have to climb again for the trees and of course that's slower so it took a little getting used to flying a level line kind of up higher down the both but down both stretches and then just kissing the trees on the turns so that was kind of the course for media options we had uh, when you come onto the track passing pylon two and three straight ahead or as you're as you're kind of coming around pylon two on the first lap there was a sandbar. And so we were, by that point, doing maybe 140. And so if the engine quit at that point, the only option we had was the sandbar. And we'd probably end up getting wet, but it would be a very survivable landing. So we knew that was an option. Down the back stretch, we could land down the beach. Uh, the beach was a little bit steep, so we knew we'd be getting wet on that one too, but it was also very survivable and they had boats in the water if we need it. And then uh, coming around home pylon, there's basically, or coming around 456, there's basically no options to the north, none. It was just... It was, it was terrain that you couldn't even drive an emergency rescue vehicle down. And so, but down the dead center of the track, basically from pylons uh, five to two, was a road that was fairly straight with trees on both sides. And so if at any point we couldn't make the 5,000 foot runway, we had like eight or 9,000 feet of straight road to put it down on if we had to. So down the dead center of the track, we had tons of options if we needed it. They could rescue us from it. It worked really well. Fortunately, nobody needed that road. Uh, the only person that actually used the road was Philip on his test flight <laughs> when was, he flew down the trees. It was kind of amusing watching him go take it, uh, take that. Uh, he, he he went and fly, flying around, and suddenly he just dips down, and we just can't see him except for this little shadow flicking between the trees, and he just pops right out on the other side, and and everyone's like, "Man, where's your camera? Where's the camera?" He's nope, didn't include a camera. So yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a good time. Uh, what else? What did we miss? Um, well, the air show was kind of a, a lot of fun too, watching those guys. Uh, they don't have the same kind of aviation and air show laws. So that's a good point. Yeah. They, I was talking to some of the performers, the performers did a really good job of uh, being professional about it. The, uh, we, the weather limitations apply. It's completely backwards to here. They don't, they only apply in practice and come show day, there's no longer any, uh, ceiling or visibility limits like we normally have in Canada uh, or North America. Uh, and so the Chinese put a lot of pressure on the performers to fly. And so some of the performers that felt comfortable went. Some of the performers that f did not feel comfortable did not go. And so a lot of them flew modified routines where possible because it was important that the Chinese got their money's worth where possible. And so they did, they did very well at that. So for performers, we had um, uh, Peter Wells, who was flying his really cool carbon fiber Spitfire-looking airplane. Yeah, the Twister or something. Yeah, yeah, it was called a, a, tw a Silent Twister. And so he had a uh, UL Power engine in it and lights and blue LED lights down the side of it. And it looked, it looked like a carbon fiber Spitfire that was like half scale. It was really cool, single-seater. So I highly recommend you guys look it up. Apparently, it's fairly hard to build, but you can buy kits. 
Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful aircraft. And it just it, it has those same elliptical wings that the Spitfire has. So it looks very, very nice. Yeah. Uh, who else was there? So the Bennett's were there. So I'd heard of the Bennett's before online. I knew they had uh, a large uh, showing in the Australian air show market. But meeting them in person, they're so nice. They're, they're like, such great people. So I think they've got like uh, 18 air show airplanes or 20 air show airplanes or something over in Australia. And uh, basically, if you want to have an air show in Australia, you call Paul Bennett. So he shows up with Warbirds, uh, pit specials, wolf pits, that kind of thing. Uh, little less ones that they fly formation routines with. And he's got probably four or five or so pilots that fly for him professionally. So they all showed up in with their, they've got an orange biplane that looks like a crayon. It's got black writing on it. And then two red and white S1s. And so they, they were doing the best sequence they could with the weather the way it was. And so that was really cool to see. Uh, they're very nice people, very knowledgeable people. And uh, it'd be really fun to go visit them one day. Uh, who else was there? So, oh yeah, so Team Extreme was there from South Africa. And so that's Nigel Hopkins, uh, Mark Hensman. I can't remember who the other guys were. Uh, Jason Beamish, and I think one other guy too. And so they, I only talked to them very briefly on the bus, but they were uh, very professional in their flying. They flew the XA-42s over there. Apparently the Chinese own them and they manage them for the Chinese. Uh, and so their their uh, routine was actually very crisp. I was very impressed with their, but they practiced it a lot too, right? Uh, who else was there? Oh yeah, um, Jason Newberg was there from Texas. So I'd never seen his act before. He brought a green and white, fairly stock. I think it was S two S. Didn't sound stock, man. That thing was loud. Yeah, he turns the prop way up, so it makes so much noise. But from a from an airframe perspective, I think it was a stock pitch, just making the most noise I've ever heard. And so his his show was kind of cool. Uh, he's uh, apparently he's fairly seasoned with the Chinese air shows. Who else was there? Uh, oh yeah, the Canadians. Yep. So uh, Trevor Rafferty, Brent Handy, Mario. I never did get his last name. And then Rick Volker showed up to do a four ship with Chinese XA forty twos. So that was kind of cool. Uh, a couple of them had never flown the XA before, so didn't that was put, kind of amusing watching them try. Didn't they put uh, fireworks on there at one point? Uh, the Team Extreme did. Oh, that was team, yeah, Team Extreme, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Canadians were uh, very professional. They uh, they knew that they had less experience than, than especially Team Extreme and some of the other performers there, especially in those airplanes. And so they, they stood down where possible or where they had to, um, but did a very good job uh, with the circumstances that they had. I was very impressed. Who else was there? Uh, well, there was Maz. Oh, yeah. Uh, Maz, who's in our uh, previous podcast. Uh, so he flies a BD-5J jet uh, with a TJ-100, which also makes a ton of noise and is tiny. and looks like it's going like a battle to hell because of the size. Uh, with the gear that comes down and up, the fastest I've ever seen before. I think it's a world record holder. It's like a half a second, and it's, it's because it's on a, on a lever. But you can hear about that in the other podcast. Yeah, the wheels are like as small as a dessert bowl. So it was very funny watching this little thing taxi by making tons of jet noise. Who else was there? I feel like I missed some people. Oh, yeah, the Chinese had a couple people show up. So they flew these things that look kind of like grobes. I don't know what they were. With like a Rotax on it. Yep. Uh, in a three-ship formation team. They were pretty tight, too, on their on their formations all the way around. Ridiculously tight. And they were, they were, they were doing like formation loops. And these airplanes were like... Like a, like a typical light sport aircraft. I have no idea what they were, uh, but they would. You should see them fly these things. Amazing demonstration. Apparently, they're the uh, they're ex uh, Chinese uh, Blue Angels equivalents. So they had all the all the military formation training, and so that that was probably why they did such a good job. Uh, the Chinese also brought out the uh, they had powered paragliders. Yeah, they had powered parachutes, and or were they, no, they were they were actual trikes, powered trike uh, paragliders. Yeah, and they they were doing some pretty neat, very close formations, formations on that one, and and uh, kind of ballerina type of stuff. They had what like eight or nine of them up in the air at a time, just really close formation with each other. So that yeah, was stacked. That was pretty cool looking. Uh, they also had uh, auto gyros. There was a three auto gyros doing uh, aerobatic performances around as well. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were fine formation too. Yep. So I think those auto gyros are for sale in China, so they're displaying them. I think that was it. Yeah, I think that was it for all the performers. So, What else can we talk about? Oh, well, we could talk about uh, our, our trips in Beijing afterwards. Oh, yeah. So we, 
Well, yeah, we finished the Sunday racing. That went fine. And then the next day, we I think it was Monday, we packed up the airplanes. And then Tuesday, we left for Beijing. Yep. So we flew out. And uh, the, the flight was horrible as usual. It's turbulent and you can't see anything because of the haze. And the airport, the airplane is really old. We flew over China. And everybody's cra- crowded and packed in there, but we made it there okay. Yeah. We, uh, we ended up actually encountering, we were just sitting there. I had, I had my, uh, my air race uh, jacket on a- in the airport. And suddenly one of the other guys that we had a couple quick little conversations with at, uh, back, at, uh, back in Wuhan... Uh, he just kind of walks up to us and goes, "Hey, how's it going?" And that was when we uh, when we kind of crossed paths with Daniel. Yeah, was, we call him Tall Daniel because it's the easiest way to to recognize Daniel Hu. And so he's a he's a Chinese local, lives in Beijing. He's on the same flight as us, and he really wants to race. I think he was working in the tower at this race. And so in the airport, he said, "Hey guys, what are you guys doing?" We said, "We're going to Beijing for a couple of days." And he went, "Oh, I can take you around if you want." And we thought, "Oh man, this is amazing." Like he's gonna like we're already in big trouble with the language, and he just will he's willing to help us for like two three days and drive us around as necessary. We said yeah absolutely, we'd love to, and so he he took us around. So we we airlined into Beijing, navigated the airport, and then Brian whipped out his phone and uh, Kelly Eldon and I would have been kind of screwed, but Brian knew exactly where to go from his technology, and so we navigated what three subway lines. Three subway lines and uh, several blocks of random walking around, and we f- we found the hotel. Pretty yeah. quick time too. The the subway is all in Chinese. They've got small English subtitles under some signs. Uh, pretty good pictorials, uh, but everything was in Chinese and Chinese pronunciation. And it all sounded the same to me. And so Brian said, "Oh, we got to get to this line. We got to go to that station. We go to the station, and then we have to give our ticket back. Wheel both of our big luggage through the the, the gates, buy another ticket, get on the other line." We did that three times on Brian's direction. And this is this is on a Tuesday during rush hour in the middle of downtown Beijing. And Eldon had, and I think Eldon had never been to Asia. Yep. Never. And so there were a couple of times when we were packed like like almost on top of each other in in the subway trains with all of our bags, and Eldon was laughing and taking pictures, and well, it was funny. Yeah. That and was... so we came out of the subway station and had to walk like five or ten blocks to our hotel. Uh, also in, in crowded streets looking out for scooters going both directions. Down Beijing streets, which uh, street signs are not all in English. And all of it was navigated by Brian. <laughs> Until we found our hotel, got in there, got checked in, and all went well after that. So the next day, where was that? Uh, next day we went, or was it? No, the day we got there, we pretty much all just kind of crashed out. Yeah. Uh, but the next day we went uh, we, we went and walked down by Forbidden City. No, that's right. So, oh yeah. So the night before, we uh, so we were staying on Wang Fujing Avenue, which is kind of the equivalent to Times Square in Beijing. So they've got all the all the uh, upscale shops and the lights and the the huge lighted signs in the street, kind of like Times Square, uh, big walking street. Uh, so there's not there's no cars allowed in most of it. So we kind of we scouted out. We knew where Tiananmen was. We knew where Forbidden City was. And so the next day we walked down Wang Fujing in the morning all the way to Forbidden City. Yeah, walked uh, and we saw the entire well, we saw the entirety of Tiananmen Square at that, uh, that yeah, first, first day. Yeah, and we went and saw we even saw the uh, the the mausoleum of Mao, uh, Chairman Mao. Yep. Uh, so it was I, I didn't actually expect that he was interned there, and you could actually see the see the body and everything. So that was that was a bit of a surreal experience there. Uh, we did a live stream from there, so if you want to check our Facebook page, you can see that live stream we did. Uh, including some people we figure were probably trying to pickpocket us. Yeah, it was, it was on the Outlaw Air Racing Facebook page, not on the Dead Sick Radio page. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting. The security there. There's probably a thousand cameras in the square alone. Each light pole has about ten cameras on it in each direction. I'm sure they're running facial recognition, and we also had to show our passports and log our passports at the entrance. And I'm pretty sure that was so the government knew where we were. And so it was very interesting. So the square is set up kind of like uh, Churchill Square in Edmonton. Uh, for those that live in Edmonton, for those that don't, it's just a big street square, uh, all concrete. And that's where the big riots were, or the big demonstrations were back in 89. And some people would call it a massacre. And so uh, on one side you have the, it's like a national convention center. The other side you have a big national museum. On the south end you have a, an old Chinese gate from the second city wall, I think. 
Yeah. And in the middle, you, you have the monument to People's Heroes and uh, Chairman Mao's uh, mausoleum. Now, on the north end is Tiananmen, which means, I think, Heavenly Gate, which is a big red wall with a picture, a big portrait of Mao Zedong on it, and then some Chinese writing that says something like uh, Forever Peace. Or people of the world unite or something like that. And it was a rough translation with Google Translate. So, uh, yeah, we did Tiananmen. And then we walked north. Walked north. Ran, ran into Robert, too. Yeah, that's when we we, uh, we hooked up with Robert. He's uh, the owner of Pooter now. And we headed into the uh, Forbidden City. Yeah, so we walked. Uh, so there, there's several walls, like inner courtyards and outer courtyards and that kind of thing. It's all traditional, maybe 1,000-year-old Chinese buildings that have been well-restored. And every single one of these buildings has a uh, has a has a throne in it for some reason. There's not one throne room like you figure uh, in you know you imagine Buckingham Palace or something has one proper throne room. No, no, every single building in the, right down the middle has a throne room in it. Yeah, it uh, it was quite cool though. So we learned a lesson there with wearing enough layers. Um, but we walked. What do we walk like? 16 kilometers that day? Yeah, it was like 16 kilometers, like 27 flights of stairs. Uh, it was it was quite a, quite a long distance. Yeah, I didn't really get any lunch either. We were all kind of tired of Chinese food and we were having trouble finding lunch just because of all the language barriers. So Daniel was not with us that day. He came, he showed up the next day. And so we, yeah, it, was, it was all a walking day and uh, we walked everywhere. We saw a whole bunch of cool things. Uh, lots of old Chinese architecture and, and Chinese buildings and all these really famous locations that we learned about back in grade six when we studied China. And so it was uh, it was really interesting to see and to be in, in Tiananmen, for example, with everything that's happened there. And then see the Forbidden City after learning about it in, uh, I think, uh, elementary school or junior high. And so we, we finished Forbidden City, walked back, and absolutely crashed. Yeah. I think it, I think all of us were tired out to the point where we could barely walk. And Especially so, after right, right at the end, there's a little park just to the north of uh, yeah. of it, and uh, of course it's, it's called Jingshan Park. Jingshan Park, and there's a it's like a little um, uh, what do you call it? A little a little house type of thing at the top. It's like a pagoda up there. Pagoda, that's the word I'm looking for. Right at the top, and you have to climb all the way up there. Uh, and uh, it, but it was a very nice view. You could see uh, pretty much all of Beijing, and it was right down the center line because in Beijing they have this. Uh, everyone talks about the you know the north south center line of Beijing, and that uh, was right on the, right on that. So you could see all around. You could see some of the uh, original Olympic venues from uh, ten years ago. Uh, some of the downtown you could very easily see. It was a very very clear, very nice day, and uh, looked looked quite great. Yeah, it was it was cool to see. And so then from Jingshan we walked all the way back, which was probably a twenty minute half hour walk, and absolutely crashed that night. Just ate in the hotel, I think. Yep. And then totally crashed. And so then the next day, Daniel picked us up, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, Daniel picked us up. Yeah, she, so he showed up with his brand new VW minibus. <laughs> with, with club the, seating. So we're sitting, the, two people are, there's there's four of us in the back, two facing forward and the other two facing backwards looking at the other people. It was uh, it was kind of a nice little nice little vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. And so Daniel took us, I think that day to, to the Great Wall, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, so that day we went to the Great Wall and then went to the other museum. Yeah, he took us to uh, Battling Great Wall. I think it was. Yeah, it's like ba- battle long or battling. Ba- yeah. yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was just a section of the Great Wall. The Great Wall runs all the way around. I think north and west Beijing, out in the out in the. It's about a half hour out of town. And so we went out there and and uh, we took the cable car up because it's all up in the mountains. The Great Wall's built up like the peaks of the mountains, basically. And what most of us didn't recognize or realize when we got there is the steepest part of the Great Wall. I think was seventy one degrees, and the part of the Great Wall we were on was like forty five degrees average slope and so it was all stairs and the stairs were not the same so one stair would be huge and like you could barely step up and the next stair would be way too small yeah and they so were kind of hard to walk and especially especially around the edges they were all kind of curved in from from there's thousands of people walking up and stepping on that same same uh, step all the way up there oh it was it was terrible i think i think we walked like 65 flights of stairs that day yeah it equivalent was, it was huge so and then uh <laughs> We, we totally tuckered ourselves out going up the Great Wall and uh, taking our pictures and then going all the way back up the steps and down the other side of it. And then uh, got back down and we uh, we ended up walking down to the to the car from there, which was way too far and we probably should have just taken the cable car. Brian was smart and decided he was going to cable car it back. And My so we kind of wish we did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we cable carted it back with Daniel. Daniel was walking. He It's like he'd been to the Great Wall every day. 
he was doing fine. We were all a little bit tuckered out, but we made it. We all survived. So then after the Great Wall, what did we do after? Oh, yeah, we went, went to, to the, the uh, Chinese Air Museum. The China China Air Museum, wasn't it? Yeah, it was called, uh, uh, shoot, it was, it was a huge Chinese museum on the north side of town. And it was it was at uh, Zashahen Air Base or something. I, I'm pronouncing it wrong or something like that. And so at this airbase, they've got a big long, they've got a runway that's probably, I don't know, 6,000 feet at the airbase. That's all military restricted. And then this big long taxiway that's probably uh, four miles long that goes north to this mountain. And so back in, in the Cold War, the Chinese built a bunker, a nuclear-proof bunker, in, in into this mountain. They, they tunneled all the way through the mountain, in one side and out the other, that they stored all of their uh, their really treasured planes in. And so they've got two double blast doors, and each blast door is like three feet thick. And there are these huge sliding doors over this hangar. So they, they decommissioned this ha- this bunker in 89, I think. And it's got all original buildings from the set, early 70s kind of era. And inside the, the bunker and uh, associated buildings, they turned it into a museum. So it was absolutely stuffed to the gills with Chinese copies of various airplanes. They had Chinese copies of the B-29, Chinese copies of the MiGs, MiG-15, 17, 21... Uh, they had uh, several cool home-built-looking things, experimentals. Yeah. What else was in there? There was a Spitfire that was very well restored, yeah. very well maintained from the Australian Air Force. Yeah, it looked ready to fly almost. They had, uh, I think they had some old Mustangs, um, some old bombers. It's kind of cool to see. Yeah, it was, it was kind of amazing just being able to walk in there. And it was, we're probably like 100 meters underground and in this big, massive, massive hangar that you could fit pretty much any kind of plane you wanted in there. And uh, just dozens and dozens of planes. There's probably, what, 50 or 60 planes under underground in there. Yeah, just in the underground tunnel. And it wasn't even packed. Like it was just, you know, it was wingtip to wingtip. But it wasn't, you know, they weren't, you know, tetris in, right? So I bet there's 150 airplanes, come to think of it. Uh, I don't know about 150. I, but in, in total, in the total entire area, yeah, there are probably at least that many. It took us probably 15 minutes to walk the whole length of the bunker. Yep. Then once we get out of the bunker, there's just this row of probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 MiG-15s all just lined up outside. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah, it was huge. Like, MiGs as far as you could see. And I think they're the Chinese copies of the MiGs, too. So uh, we did that. Uh, what else was in that airbase? Uh, I think that was it for cool things. Uh, there was, um, what was it, that... Uh... There's that Russian jet. There was a couple of those in in the other hangar after we walked over there. There was a bunch of other Chinese copies of random other planes. There was that Beaver that uh, was it the one of the royal family or something flew around the world in. I can't. Oh, uh, I, I think it was a twin otter that uh, an Australian couple or something flew around the world and donated it to that museum like last year. They still had the headsets hanging in the windows even, so it was like pretty much ready to fly. The rest of the airplanes were all. Uh, um, Pickled, I guess, in antiques and would never fly again. Yeah. There was uh, there was actually a bunch of uh, planes there, too, that uh, the presidents and I think Mao had originally flown in. They were basically the Air Force Ones of China that had been decommissioned and, yeah. and were sitting over there. They were repainting of one of them, and it was kind of kind of cool to see that. Yeah. And so then uh, after that, we were tuckered out, and uh, Daniel took us for hot pot, I think. Yep. That, that was, was hot pot night. That was. What do you think of hot pot? I, I'm a fan of hot pot now. I've never even heard of it before in my life. So effectively what it is, is they give you this, this bowl of oil that they put on the center. It's center like soup broth. It's, it's like soup broth. Yeah. And you, they put it in the center and then they bring out raw meat and it's all kinds of raw meat, whether it's, uh, you know, beef, there's some, uh, chicken there. I think pork, there was pork as well. Lamb. Clam. There's every, everything you can imagine. Sliced and, really thin. Sliced really, really thin. What you do is you take it with your chopsticks, pick it up, put in that oil for a minute or so, holding it in there, and you take it out and it's ready and cooked. And you can pick which kind of oil you want. And some of them are spicy. Some of them are, there was a tomato one. There was a bunch of different kinds. And it was um, it was very interesting. Yeah. And so we, uh, I think, uh, so I'd eaten hot pot before. I think Kelly had too. But I don't think Eldon or Brian had it. So Never had it before. They had quite an experience, I think. And uh, it was actually really good. The restaurant smelled really good inside. Yeah. Oh, the broth was, was amazing, especially the tomato one. Um, we had veggies and that kind of thing that you could all dip in the hot pot. And so, yeah, it was, it was good. It was fun. And we, uh, we made really good friends with Daniel that night, really connected with him. So then the uh, last day, what are we doing last day? 
The last day we went to oh, the museum day. The, yeah, it was a Chinese uh, Chinese warm military, military museum. Military museum, yeah. And in that museum was really interesting. They had a crashed U two fighter or U two uh, spy plane in in the underground portion of it. And you could walk right up to it. It was kind of set down into the ground, so you could kind of walk over the wings of it a bit. It was kind of it was a uh, very interesting. Yeah, apparently I was reading about. It. I think Taiwan was flying. Uh, U uh, two missions over People's Republic of China, uh, and apparently the Chinese shut down four of them. I think over the the span of ten years or something that the flights were happening. So it was really cool to see one of those crashed U twos after seeing real U twos at Reno and so on. So it was, it was kind of cool. They 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 uh, it had been clearly severely damaged, and they they pieced it together the best they could. So you could tell it was a wreck that it was pieced back together, but. It still looked perfectly like U two, and all the panels were in the right spot. So, or most of them were. Yeah, there was definitely some <laughs> that uh, that were definitely not in the right spot. <laughs> but they were. It was. It was a. It was a, an attempt to put it back together correctly. And it's fun too because you could look kind of inside the U two and see all the bulkheads and and hinges and that kind of thing and see how the things put together. And it's actually quite simple. I was pretty surprised. So, we did the military museum, and then what did we do after that? After that, we went to the summer palace. Oh, yeah, that's right. So the Summer Palace is definitely more of a summer attraction. <laughs> yeah, man, were we cold. Yeah, and uh, we, we basically walk around. It's basically a lake and a park around a lake with some really old Chinese buildings. So we walked to the right when we walked in the gate, and we went around the lake about a quarter of the ways to this big, tall hill with a, a building on top. And so we walked through. It's kind of cool. There's this old uh, traditional Chinese housing structure and then after that, there's this big, long, kilometer-long walkway that was like 700 or 800 years old. About that, yeah. Yeah, it was really old with paintings in it. It's extremely uh, elaborately painted in Chinese paintings. It attached between the the house that was on there, about on the was the north side of the lake, to the temple, which is where we went to next. So yeah, so and so we walked the walkway. Walk outside. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. And so we we go to this uh, old temple, I guess. And walk in and we pay our, and, and everywhere you go, you, you first you pay your entrance fee. And then every time you want to enter in one of the other sub-buildings of the park, you have to pay another fee. Which is really smart if you think about it. And I hope nobody ever learns that here, but it would be a really good uh, business opportunity. And so then we, we pay our money again and walk in and go into this temple. And we walk around the first building and, and uh, walk uh, through this next wall. And all of a sudden, there's this huge staircase. It was probably four or five stories tall and and brian really struggled at the great wall he's really feeling it the next day and so when we turned the corner and saw those stairs you should have seen brian's face it was a complete you have got to be kidding me look <laughs> <laughs> so at that point we uh we we survived the stairs made it up all all the flights of stairs it was probably uh five stories maybe and at the very top we discovered a buddhist temple i think it was buddhist that was, how old was it, 1,500 years old? It's pretty old, yeah. Yeah, it's probably a 1,500-year-old Buddha in this building. And uh, we weren't allowed to take any pictures. It was uh, basically just a, a quiet building with one shop selling tourist stuff and this big Buddha in this building. We had no idea it was there. Yeah, it was, so kinda, it was kind of amusing. They wouldn't let you take photos, but yet they're standing there, like, playing with... Selling tourist cheap, toys. Cheap yeah, very cheap plastic tourist toys to everyone. And like, no, no, you can't take a photo, but you can buy this this wooden frog that makes this riveting noise. It was a little surreal. Yeah, it was annoying. And so uh, coming back from Summer Palace, I think it was pretty uneventful. And then we decided to go to the hotel for dinner, didn't we? Yeah, I think uh, I think that night we went for dinner at the hotel as well. Yeah, and so then we got to eat some American food again. It was pretty nice. And Daniel was with us the whole time, and we decided to do some shopping. And so Daniel took us uh, to the shopping mall in Wang Fujing. And he found this really cool cultural store upstairs, a cultural arts store. It was absolutely perfect for us that we would have never found without Daniel. And so we bought uh, some, some Chinese banners and some Chinese artwork, that kind of thing, before we left the next day. And so the next day, uh, we woke up early, Eldon, uh, Kelly, and I. And we all were on the same flight. Eldon was up front, Kelly and I were in the back. And there, in Air China, there's no such thing as premium economy. So for those listening where premium economy is usually the preferred way to fly across the Pacific. Air China doesn't have it, so I highly recommend you avoid that airline. But we were in steerage, 
And we had this uh, Asian lady, this Chinese lady in between Kelly and I. Kelly had the aisle like he wanted. I had the window. <laughs> and this Chinese lady in the middle between us that spoke almost no English. And so I had this conversation with her through Google Translate that basically went, she's really proud of her son who goes to UBC. It was her first time coming to Canada. And so uh, she was actually quite cute. And uh, then as the flight went on, Every time Kelly went up to go to the bathroom, I figured it'd be she figured it'd be a good opportunity, so she went and I went. So it became a running joke with her, and she would laugh and laugh and laugh every time Kelly got up because she knew I was going to go to. So the flight home really sucked. It was like ten hours in the tiny little seat, the most uncomfortable seat I could imagine, Uh, and my headset didn't work. So uh, another word of warning. On those long flights, uh, both the Air Canada flight and the Air China flight had the two prong headset adapter required. So we were able to jimmy to jimmy it going there to make it work with the entertainment system. But coming home there, none of our headphones would work. So we all had to rely on our cell phone movies. So make sure when you travel to Asia, particularly, or any of the long flights, that you bring your two-prong headphone adapter because it's still in use today. Yeah. And I hadn't had that in a long time, flying all over the place. And so that was, that was a lesson for me. Yeah. I was actually surprised. Uh, power-wise, over there... Everything is, you know, 220 volts, as you would expect, but they're all pretty much, they'll take a North American plug as long as your your device will take that 220 volts, which I found actually quite surprising. Over here, you know, we have one kind of plug. It's, you know, the two prongs of the little ground underneath it. But over there, almost every single plug in the wall is a universal plug. So you can plug pretty much anything you want in there, whether it's North American, Australian, whatever you want. You can just plug it in, and that's everywhere over there. Yeah, and it, yeah, and the big lesson there is make sure that your device can take two twenty. <laughs> we had a we had a problem with that actually with the battery. We were trying to charge the uh, the battery on the planks was having some troubles getting started there on the first day, so we went to go get the battery uh, battery charger and we go and look and of course it only takes one ten, and nobody there has anything that'll convert to one ten from two twenty. So we're scrambling around, scrambling around. Eventually, eventually someone uh, has one that we found, but. Yeah, that was uh we should have we should have thought about that before we left. Yeah. What what else did we learn from that trip? Oh yeah, watch out for bones in your chicken and oh. your fish. Everything has bones over there. It's like yeah. you're you over here you eat, you know, a chicken dinner or whatever. You're not expecting, you know, giant chunks of bone. Like they're they're not like uh big full bones. No, they're chopped up bones. They're just chop it, leave it in, it's, it's fine. Yeah, the, the other big lesson that uh, a couple of us learned on the trip was they don't have toilet paper in their bathroom stalls. So if you need toilet paper, bring it with you. And so we were all bringing it to the airport because it wasn't in any of the stalls. And then also when you walk into the stall, it's just a hole in the ground. And so it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting experience, especially for the women. The good old squatty potties, as we were calling them. Yeah. Uh, what else did we learn? I think that's pretty much it. That was pretty pretty much it. It was uh, you, you do get sick of the Chinese food after a few days, uh, after a week or so, and you're just longing for North American food. Yeah, pretty much everybody in the trip was, and I think part of it was we were just eating bad quality Chinese food. Yeah, they so, had. Uh, you, you imagine the the kind of lunches you get around here, uh, around in North America. You know, when you're when you're doing an event for someone or whatever, and they give you some cheap food, some you know, it's a, a sandwich or something cheaply made. Well, they do the same thing over there, except it's with Chinese food. So you end up with food that might not be the best quality. Yeah. Well, that was what, episode three? That was episode three of the Dead Stick Radio podcast. Uh, of course, you can find us on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook under uh, Dead Stick Radio. And, uh, of course, our website, deadstickradio.com. Yeah, and the uh, the race team we we race under is Outlaw Air Racing on Facebook is Outlaw Air Racing, and uh, there's several uh, Instagram posts on on my personal Instagram page, which is Holmes540. Yeah, and you can find actually we did a bunch of uh, a bunch of live streams while we were over there. Some of them uh, early days we did. I did a full live stream of the Winter Circle uh, right after the after the Gold Race. Thanks for listening. Yeah.